You're listening to What's Wrong With This Picture? Freaky Films and Why We Frickin' Love Them. Hi, I'm Lindsay McCullough. And I'm Gary Mulholland. And in each episode of What's Wrong With This Picture, we'll be looking at a movie we think is weird and wonderful. We sometimes do include the endings where it's key to what the film is, so please be prepared for that. So anyway, buckle up and join us on a journey to dangerous cities, suburbia and other fantasy worlds. It's going to be a wild ride. In this episode, uh, we are looking at a movie called Detour. Uh, It's a 1945 crime movie directed by Edgar G. Ulmer, starring Tom Neal as Al Roberts, Anne Savage as Vera, Claudia Drake as Sue Harvey, Edmund MacDonald as Charles Haskell Jr. III, and uh, written by Martin Goldsmith and associate producer Martin Mooney, and adapted from Goldsmith's Detour, um, An Extraordinary Tale, uh, which is his own novel. The film is an extraordinary 68 minutes long. Uh, Christopher Nolan uh, just have a look at that the next time you make a movie (laughs) and it was a Poverty Row production and by Poverty Row uh, this was a slang term given to a number of independent studios that made films between the 1920s and the 1950s in order to fill small cinemas Uh, this was at a time when uh, people expected at least a double bill of films and where the major studios also owned most of the cinemas. So obviously, if you weren't part of that cartel, um, they wouldn't give you the best product. Um, You had to go to other sources, uh, hence the growth of Poverty Row. Uh, The cinematographer is Benjamin H. Klein. Um, He's not particularly well known, but I mentioned him for no other reason but that this film looks extraordinary. So the basic plot of Detour. Al Roberts is an unshaven, scruffy, depressed-looking hitchhiker who, as the credits roll, ends up drinking coffee in a diner in Reno. A song plays on the jukebox, and through voiceover and flashback, we learn that Al is a New York pianist who recently decided to follow his nightclub singer girlfriend to Hollywood when she decamps to L.A. to find fame and fortune. No money, so he hitches. Yeah, and... So, Gary, you mentioned that this is a film noir and also a B-movie. And with B-movies, as you rightly say, they were they were shorter. They were made for less money. Uh, they were So they were cheaper. The advantage of the B-movie was that there wasn't the studio looking over your shoulder and mm. seeing what you could what you could write and what you could not write and what you could depict on screen. Yeah. As you mentioned, it's a film noir. And, and film noir is interesting because, in a way, there's no such thing. Um, at the time, the studios weren't consciously making film film noir. It was a term that was determined by a French critic called Nino Franck in 1946. And you know the French, they are keen on their American movies and they see something in them. I didn't realise actually that it was coined as early as that, the term film noir. Yeah. 1946? 1946. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But you've got to remember that film noir started in probably 1942, say, with Maltese Falcon. Yeah. So at the time, the studios weren't consciously making film noir films the way they were making westerns, the way they were making musicals. So because the French hadn't been able to see these films throughout the war, they see them all in 1946 and they see a pattern in them, which is presumably not what the studios has, had, in, had intended. So that kind of pattern, well, what's what's in them? You know it, I know it. It's They're black and white, mostly. I should say, with all these rules in inverted mm-hmm. commas for film noir, most film noir adhere to some of them, 
not many yeah. films adhere to all of them. Some of them adhere to none of them, and yet yeah. they're film noir. So it's a very, as they call it, a contested kind of term. Nobody yeah. really knows what is film noir and what, what isn't film noir. Are there 20 film noir films? Are there 2,000 film noir films? <laughs> well, you tell me, because yeah. Yeah. it's Absolutely. a flexible term. It's a Absolutely. flexible term. But I guess generally what we understand by it, those kind of things that we would expect to see are their um, black and white, their use of flashback, their use of a, a narrator, who sometimes you can believe and sometimes you can't can't believe. Uh, there's a sexuality to them. They often, but not always, have a femme fatale. So a woman who comes in to kind of disrupt whatever is happening for the hero. They focus on criminal protagonists. They very rarely end well. Um, so when you see those kind of things, you kind of recognise, okay, that's a film noir. And um, Detour is very clearly a film noir and it has several of those aspects. But boy, flips them on their heads sometimes. It's just, it's a film noir, but it's kind of, when you think of film noir, you might think of Robert Mitchum or uh, Humphrey Bogart, and they're these incredibly kind of smooth, cool guys. Exactly, Al, exactly. in Detour, he's a sweaty, desperate mess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this brings really neatly onto why this is a weird film, uh, why this is part of our pantheon of the weird. Um, I think that's a key thing. Um, as Lindsay says, you know, Robert Mitchum and Humphrey Bogart and Robert Ryan and Sterling Hayden and Richard Winmark, these very key male stars of film noir, um, they were all either action men or good talkers or lasonic and smarmy or, or whatever. They were men in some form of control until they lost control. Handsome and cool. Yeah, handsome and cool. Tom Neal um, and, uh, you know, the character who plays Al Roberts is, as you say, a sweaty, desperate mess. Um, and he is, his, the way he plays this character is essentially he's a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> I mean, he, he basically pouts when anybody doesn't give him what he wants and then sulks. And he sulks his way and pouts his way through 68 minutes of, uh, of genius. Um, and so that's one of the subversive things about... Uh, but there's a few more things that we, I, we think of as really weird about this film, though, isn't there, Lindsay? I think, yeah, I think the dialogue is uh, incredibly freaky in, in, in some ways. So he has a first-person... Narration and this this happens as I said quite a lot in film noir. So in Double Indemnity, say Walter is kind of confessing his crimes through his narration. But there's all, the, the question in Detour is who is Al talking to? Because <laughs> he is very kind of accusatory, and so the film noir is you know I walked into the bar and she was waiting for me there like a ray of sunshine. Al is all, you don't believe me. I can see by yeah. your face, you don't believe me. So yeah, who, is he, absolutely. who is he talking to? Who is he talking to? And I, I mean, there's this fantastic scene um, where we've gone through a bit of plot in flashback and then we're back with, uh, with Al in the diner and he basically explodes at more or less at the screen. Um, and he's really, he's talking to the listener, uh, to the, sorry, to the viewer. It's kind of like you and your smug faces your, your, and your sermons. And you're sort of sitting there going, I didn't say anything. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I, I believe you. I believe you. Calm down. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's a really good place to talk about, actually, unreliable narration. Yeah. Because this is a key part of noir, isn't it, Lindsay? That's right, yeah. So we're basically getting the story as told from one of the main characters and... 
uh, as you say, unreliable narration is very much a feature of some noirs, not all noirs. I'm going to have to um, give that disclaimer all the way through because they are a varied beast. But yeah, that, that unreliable narration. And I think belief and what you can believe in this film is kind of key all the way through. Mm. The song, in the, in the flashback, when he's talking about his ideal girlfriend, Sue, the one who's decamped to, to, to Hollywood to make her fame and fortune, the song that Sue is singing is called I Can't Believe That You're In Love With Me. Yeah. And frankly, none of us can believe that anyone's <laughs> in love with Al. <laughs> and, 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 and we can't believe a word he says. And um, Sue, we only see in flashback, and she's a very much a diminishing character. So in the flashback at the start, we see her, she's a, she, she talks, she walks. In the flashbacks after that, she's on the phone Sometimes we see her, sometimes we don't, but she never says another word after the first flashback. So yeah. it's 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 kind of how much of an ideal is she? How real is she? We don't I've even never, believe that abs- is she a, is she a thing? That's amazing. I've never thought of that until you've just said it. But there is a possibility that she doesn't exist, yeah. right? Yeah. Because the, the the last communication is in the hotel room, and we will come back to the plot, listener. We will come back to the plot and explain because the plot is insane. Um, but um, there's a, a bit in a hotel room where he sneaks off to phone her, and you know we get a picture of her going hello, and then he doesn't say anything to her. Yeah. And it's kind of like. Now I'm thinking about it, Lindsay, and thinking, does she exist? Is she a or, figment of his imagination? Or, or was he just stalking her? Did he? I mean, they they sang together in the band, but were they actually engaged? As he said, so this is this is the whole thing about Al. You cannot believe, believe a single a word, word he says. He says. Yeah, absolutely, not a single word. And actually, the other characters who will come on, and maybe it's time for a bit more more plot, Gary, if you don't mind. Mm. Uh, Vera, who's the femme fatale, or is she? And Haskell, who's the victim, um, as, as Gary will explain. You can't believe a word they say either. Not and really. now this, this is all done in flashback. It's all Al's story. So is Al kind of presenting them as very unreliable people? Or... Is he just like the ultimate liar from start to finish? Yeah, there's a bit of Rashomon going on. So a bit more plot. Um... Alice hitchhiking, he is picked up by a guy called Charles Haskell Jr. III, who is a sleazy conman, pill-popping gambler and bookie. Um, after a bit of a lurid backstory from Haskell, um, he dies, probably of a heart attack, but uh, he hits his head on a rock as he falls out of the car. Al figures that no one will believe that he didn't bash Haskell himself and murder him, so his solution is to take the car and the cash and Haskell's ID, and become Charles Haskell Jr. III. Mayhem ensues, and Mayhem uh, is is named Vera. Yeah, uh, Mayhem in the form of, of Vera. So Vera is the is the femme fatale. Uh, or is she in this? When we first see her, now you'd expect, again, in these noir films, people like uh, Lorne Bacall or Jane Greer, any of those, they're always very glamorous. Mm. So if you're seeing a hitchhiker... A woman hitchhiker getting picked up. Now, first of all, Haskell says pretty much only sluts are, are kind of... Yeah, if, yeah. if you're a woman and you're hitchhiking, you're certainly a, a, a very specific kind of woman. But when we first see Vera, she's wearing kind of flat loafers. She's got this shapeless cardigan and skirt on. She's not wearing like the 40s tailored suit that you might on the high heels and the and the kind of glint in her eye that you might expect a femme fatale to have. She slouches... Um, Can I mention a bit of weird there? Please. Because um, I am trying to remember the name of the composer. I think he is called... Oh, Erdodi. 
And uh, the music that he wrote the song, I Can't Believe That You're In Love With Me, um, but he uh, comes out of character for the sort of slightly sinister orchestral music that forms most of this film. And when she appears on screen, gives it a bit of 40s glamour, sex bomb, you know, kind of the kind of music that comes on in Who Framed Roger Rabbit when, you know, Jessica Rabbit walks across the screen. And And of course, the viewer is looking at her and going... Uh, why? <laughs> um, and again, it's this just this idea of it's playing with you. This film is playing with your it's it's not just playing with your subjective or objective point of view, but it's playing with film conventions. Absolutely. Um, so when he picks up Vera, which, by the way, you will have guessed by now, it's a huge mistake. <laughs> but when he picks up picks up Vera, because, you know, after all, you've just seen a guy die, you've taken his car and his clothes and his ID, why wouldn't you stop to pick up a hitchhiker instead of just going on your merry way? But no, he stops to pick up a hitchhiker and it's, and it's Vera. Um, and part of his narration, so he's you're seeing, the, the viewer is seeing Vera from the side in profile as she's sitting in the passenger seat. Obviously, Al is in the driver's seat and his narration is is like, starts off with that kind of, she was a dame like any other dame kind of thing. And he's talking about how beautiful or, or not beautiful she is. He says something like, she's not the kind of beauty that you'd think about when you were with your wife. And it's like, OK, so that's your ideal of marriage, <laughs> is it that you're already thinking about somebody else? But OK, she's not the kind of woman that you'd think about uh, when you were with your wife. She's got a homely kind of beauty. And at that point, she turns to face Al and face us yeah. with this hatchet face on her. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like, has she heard what his narration has yeah. just said? Yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's very odd. It's, it, this is a film that every so often says, you're watching a film. Another example mm. of this, which I really love, later on they're in, they're in the hotel and you hear saxophone music, you know, this kind of 40s prelude to sex or, you know, has, is sex about to happen? It's very sexy times. Wah, wah, wah on the, on, the, on the saxophone. And then he goes to the window and he says, I wish somebody would stop playing that saxophone. And it's like, oh, you hear the saxophone. It's not on the soundtrack. <laughs> it's coming in through the window. And yeah. it's just... It's very weird, you know. It's a bit like Airplane or or Naked Gun or something. It's just it, oh, sometimes yeah, it seems like time. an absolute parody, parody. of noir, which hasn't yeah hasn't even barely started, and it's never not been named. It's not been invented. I know they're paro- parodying the, the the essence of what noir is before anybody's decided what noir is. Absolutely, I, I, yeah. I guess they're parodying the conventions of crime movies of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, may not be called film noir yet, but you know it, it's that. I mean, they're taking the mick. Yeah. They are taking the mick. And, but that moment, I mean, there's so many great moments in Detour, but that's my favourite. It's Vera, played by Anne Savage, turning to the camera. And your heart stops. This is a look of such visceral loathing and anger. I, uh, honestly, I think it's hard to match anywhere later in cinema uh, a look at camera that makes you shrink away from the camera and kind of think, I never want to meet this person. And not just shrink away from the camera. I mean, surely you're detrimenting if you're any kind of guy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. this is not a sexy femme fatale that's alluring no. you in. I mean, I think the thing she says to him most often is, shut up, yeah. shut up. She's shut constantly up. telling him to shut up. <laughs> I think there's two things. That I, one thing that I just saw, as part of his spiel about, oh, she's this and she's that, you know, his, his voiceover's banging on you know and he says she's about 24 and you can kind of look at her go, she's about 24 <laughs> she's 44 she's a day what are you talking about um 
And a, a couple of, uh, there's a, a sort of a whole thing about a running, it's almost like a running dark joke about music. Because this is a guy, this is really, I find, quite extraordinary scene. It's again a flashback to the nightclub. He's all tuxed up and he's playing piano. Um, Sue, his, his girlfriend or imaginary girlfriend, has gone. Um, so he's up there on his own playing piano. And he starts off with this incredibly florid, accomplished piece of classical music. Then yeah, slides yeah. into this kind of parody of swing. Then slides again into this parody of boogie woogie. It's just like this virtuoso kind of thing. And you think, right, well, okay, this this guy's just not just someone who's picked up a few chords. He's a classically trained pianist. Yeah. But throughout this film, music is a trigger for him to madness, yeah, despair. That's true. That's true. Anytime he hears a piece of music, it's like it, it's you know he he slips into the deep end. Um, and maybe this is a good time to look at sex because yeah. the sexual jousting between Vera and Al is odd. Yeah. So... Um, maybe just a bit more plot to say that they they end up in uh, he's picked he's picked Vera up. Um, I do want to return to Haskell in just a minute, but let's mm. let's go into their sex, which is, eesh, but <laughs> <laughs> yes. So they've they've ended up in a hotel room and they've got various kind of plots and plans going on, and they get drunk on what looks like a bottle of cherry brandy. I mean, it's not like Moe Chandon. It's it's very much some some cheap hooch that they're they're swigging down together, mm. and so in this hotel room they are they are forced to stay together because of some plot that Vera's got in mind. Um, it's a one bedroom hotel room, but there is a Murphy bed in the living room. You know, one of those beds mm. that you pull mm. down from the wall, and she says to him in this parody, you know, they're kind of by the Murphy, Murphy bed, which is still in the wall, and she says to him in this parody of sexuality, do you know how to work it? And he's like, I invented it. Like, <laughs> well, none of that is turning me on. And it's, it's just, and it's, it's so, freaky. it's so odd because what, one of the things, I don't know whether you think it has a fetishistic feel, but it feels like Al, he really likes being dominated by this woman. Yeah. He's just, she's just absolutely vile to him. And his response is essentially, yeah, whatever you say. Yeah. And, you know, and then for him to suddenly, hey, I invented sex, baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, what? Yeah. And if you did, I'm not, I'm really not sure that I... <laughs> Ever want to have it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so then, you know, as 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 time does in film noir, time passes, and then you know she's sitting putting her lipstick back on, and he's not got his tie on anymore. So yeah, yeah. presumably the Murphy bed has has done its duty as some kind of erotic, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but can I just go back to Haskell yes, because yes. he's an, he's another liar. He's an absolute other mm. liar. So it turns out that the reason that. Um, Al's fate is in Vera's hands, is that Haskell also picked up Vera. Mm. So by the time yes. Al picks her up, she knows that Al is not Haskell. She knows that the car is not Al's car. She knows that the clothes are not Al's clothes. Um, and, and the reason she's not with Haskell anymore is that he's made a pass at her. I mean, at the very least, maybe he tried something, tried to rape her, who knows. And she's she's scratched him quite um, significantly on his hands and then he's, he's kicked her out. Um, and Haskell says to Al... I was tussling with the most dangerous animal in the world. 
woman. <laughs> and it's like, it's a laughable line, but then you look at Vera and you think, actually, yeah, bloody hell. In this particular <laughs> yeah. case. She's, she's well scary, man. But um, so Haskell says, oh, the scars on my hands, they're, they're nothing. And he shows Al a, a major scar that he's got down his arm. And this happened when he was a kid and he was playing with his father's couple of Franco-Prussian swords. Yeah. Weirdly specific. But anyway, his dad had a couple of Franco-Prussian swords and him and another kid were fighting and uh, he ended up putting the other kid's eye out. And Haskell says, it was just an accident, of course. And every fibre of your being is like, you no, liar. No, it You wasn't. liar. You've done that deliberately. So it's just this, this, you cannot believe a word of what happens in this. No. A word of what happens in this film. Absolutely. I, and, and really, all three central protagonists, um, all three central protagonists are plainly lying. And the fourth protagonist may well not exist. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, so, business as usual in yeah, La La Land. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, bits of weird, just while we're, we're sort of still on the thing of, yeah, but what does make this weird? Uh, it's one of my favourite parts. Um, they, uh, Sue, um, so the nightclub singer, and Al are taking a walk from the nightclub uh, back to her apartment where basically it goes from, hey, we're in love, we're all going to go get married, um, to actually, Al, I'm off. I'm (laughs) going to California. Uh, You know, I thought you loved me. Yes, but I love the thought of fame and fortune more uh, kind of thing. And as this conversation, it's just so beautiful. It's corny, but it's lovely. It's... The, it's a it's a relatively bright night when they start walking, and as the conversation becomes more difficult and murky, they are shrouded by clouds and clouds of fog until you can barely see them. <laughs> and it it's just it's so that expressionism that came from Germany uh, originally, um, that idea that you actually use sights to say what the characters are thinking mm-hmm. rather than have the characters say what they're thinking or feeling. Um, it's an extreme version, but it's really, really lovely. Yeah. Um, uh, another weird, very weird scene is um, it's the last time Al appears to be anything remotely happy in this film is when he's driving um, uh, and he starts to daydream about Sue. And this daydream uh, is her doing the song yeah. yet again. I can't, yeah, can't believe that you're in love with me. Um, but... Basically, the backing band is three shadows on a wall uh, playing horn instruments. Oh, my God, and, I don't even remember that. And it's shot at the most bizarrely tilted angle. <laughs> and it's it's just kind of like, it, it's it's a precursor to MTV. Uh, it, it is. It's a precursor to MTV. It is, it is a brilliant little pop video. But it's completely weird. And again, kind of, pushes up this thing that you've, you've posited here today, Lindsay, is, does she exist at all? Well, you know, she she lives in Canada and she goes to a different school. You don't know her. It's one, <laughs> it's one of those ones really, isn't yeah. it? But I, I like the idea of Al being in this kind of, you know, going to have to face it, I'm addicted to love kind of yeah, pop video. Yeah, yeah. Is that what, is that what it looks like? <laughs> little bit, little bit. Nice pick. Yeah, yeah. Addicted to love video. Excellent. <laughs> so just to really clear up the plot here. So... Okay, so we've got as far as 
Al has picked up Vera. Uh, as Lindsay says, yes, of course, if you've just stolen a man's entire life, the first thing you do is pitch up a hitchhiker that look, pick up a hitchhiker who looks insane. Um, Vera has quickly worked out, um, even before she got in the car, that um, this guy's not on the level. Um, and what she does is basically blackmail him. You're going to take me to L.A. Um, you're going to initially sell the car um, and you're going to give me all the money from the car and or, or else I'm going to go to the cops. Um, they get to L.A., um, but just as they're about to sell the car, um, she sees a newspaper, conveniently, uh, which has a headline on it about who turns out to be Charles Haskell Sr., who uh, is apparently on his deathbed and is looking desperately for his missing son uh, because, you know, he, he wants to... Yeah. Leave him money. Yeah. So they've she, fallen out of touch, haven't they? They haven't been in touch for years. They've fallen out of touch, and this was part of the um, Charles Haskell Junior.'s uh, backstory that they hadn't mm. spoken to each other for fifteen years. So, um, I think I think it's fifteen years. So anyway, um, they they kind of she drags him out of the uh, car showroom where he's just about to sell the car, and basically says, "You're not getting rid of me yet at all. Um, what you're going to do is you're going to turn up at uh, the Haskell residence. You're going to introduce yourself as <laughs> Charles Haskell Junior the Third, um, because hey, he hasn't seen you for fifteen years, so he won't recognise you, and you're basically <laughs> going to get all the money, and you're going to give half of it to me. It is the most insane, of course, blackmail." <laughs> plot ever hatched so the thing about Vera is that she loves money and she will do anything to get it but it's different for Al isn't it it is um, according to Al money is just a piece of paper crawling with germs and uh, I, I which is probably my favorite line in the whole movie and uh, I'm particularly kind of post-covid <laughs> it has this weird resonance in the last <laughs> yeah. couple of years where actually money really was uh, pieces of paper crawling with germs um, but um, metaphorically it, that really works and it, it, that fatalism, that darkness, it even takes in money It's which of course is the great American obsession Yeah, and of course uh, finally uh, Al stands up for himself just a little bit and says no nah, I'm not doing that. A fight ensues in the hotel and in um, I don't know, this could be the strangest death in film <laughs> history. Um, basically, they argue about whether she is actually going to uh, turn him into the police and uh, she picks up the phone and she runs with it into the bedroom and uh, locks herself in the bedroom. And obviously he is panicking about her calling the police. He pulls the telephone cord and keeps pulling it, pulling it, saying, you know, I'm going to pull the cord right out of the phone and strangles her. <laughs> That's right. That's right, listeners. He has strangled her accidentally with a telephone cord. Um, at this point, really, uh, so basically at uh, the end of the film, um, in, in its bare bones, is he makes a run for it, but he doesn't get very far. Uh, we find him again in the diner at Reno, where basically he's told us the story. Um, he mentioned something about the fact that actually the police appear to be looking for Charles Haskell Jr. the third. So, you know, hey, yeah. uh, maybe I've got off with it. Yeah. Uh, and then starts to walk down the road. I should put, say at this point, he is not happy about his lot. He's a broken man full of guilt and despair. He starts to walk down the road. 
a police car draws up beside him and pulls him into the car. Uh, see, is that how you're reading it? Because I think it's very much a kind of, I know that one day I'm going to be walking down the road and a police car is going to pull up. Yes. So it's a, it's a kind of, it hasn't happened yet, but it's, it's kind of, it's hanging over him. It's his fate. And that's the perfect place to talk about fate, Lindsay. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, um, I mean, fate and destiny always plays quite a big part in, in noir films anyway. If that hadn't happened, then wouldn't, this wouldn't have happened. But I came across a quote recently, a man's character is his fate. And that's by a Greek philosopher. Uh, I'm not going to attempt his name because <laughs> I didn't do Greek at school. I did, I did woodwork. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that to be true. <laughs> Um, but it, but but fate is a big thing. So I was constantly saying things like something else stepped in and took control. And his whole narration is, why did this happen to me? Why me? Instead of seeing that he he did it all from the start. He's full of things like Haskell got me into this by falling out of the car and killing himself on a stone and then <laughs> forcing him to take the car and the money and pretend to be him. Um, and the, the 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 last line is, uh, and I think just just thinking about femme fatale. If we think as femme fatale, not as fatale as in sexy, but as mm. in fate and fatalistic, mm. then then Vera is the femme fatale. Vera is the kind of the the the. Um, his destiny. But he refuses to take any responsibility for anything that he's done and just sees himself as being kind of down, victim. Victim. downtrodden, total victim. And the last line is, fate, or some other mysterious power, can put the finger on you or me for no good reason at all. Like he's this yeah. poor yeah. schmuck that all this has happened to. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of dialogue about fate. Um, Vera, at one point, when they're arguing in the hotel room, um, says to him, what's wrong with the world is that people knock themselves out trying to buck fate. You're lucky to be alive. <laughs> um, and there's this another moment where it's really emphasised in the script. Uh, he's talking to her, but it, it, it kind of comes out and he just says, no, in fact, it's a part of his voiceover. Um, I was dead tired. And there's a little phrase, after, a little pause after dead. And you know that dead is is. The key word yeah, there, yeah, not absolutely. tired. Well, they're, they're both fatalistic, aren't they? And, and not uh, with, with the root of that word being fatal. And they're both kind of okay about death. Uh, she, yeah. she turns out to have consumption, yeah, I think it sometimes. Yeah, that suddenly but, turns up at, yeah, uh, yeah, towards yeah. the end. The handy, the handy consumption that, 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 that um, follows a cough in, in any film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but she says, she says something like, we all know we're going to kick off someday, it's only a question of when. Yeah. And then later on when she's saying, when Al is like, well, you know, if you, you dob me into the police, I'll dob you in right back. And, and she says, I hope you get the rope, but, and I don't care if I do. And of course, at the end, you know, that telephone cord around her neck, she does kind of get, get the, the rope. rope. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Never really thought of that. Yeah, he's he's hunger. Yeah, he's hunger, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah. 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 You're absolutely right. And uh, I mean, I don't. You know, we both, me and Lindsay, we really love film noir. So it, we've done a bit of reading up around it. And certainly, one of the theories about why a, this particularly sort of grim subgenre of movies um, sort of reached a peak in the late forties was because. It, you, you have to remember, Detour literally came out two months after VJ Day, which was uh, the victory over Japan Day um, that was the absolute end of World War II. Um, so it was shot literally as the, world, as the war was ending, um, pr presumably maybe after, you know, the bombs yeah. on Hiroshima yeah. and, and Nagasaki. And 
it, for the first time, because of the mass medium that was television, because of the mass medium that was newsreel um, that was shown at movie cinemas, people had seen what the Second World War was. Uh, they had seen uh, the death camps. They'd seen the concentration camps. They'd probably seen the mushroom clouds. Um, and they'd also heard from their own family members um, the hell that they'd been through in the Second World War, as well as, of course, um, dealing with the bereavement of, of you know, thousands and thousands who'd been lost. So uh, perhaps not surprising that there yeah. is a bleakness yeah. in um, films around that time and a cynicism and despair about how the depths that human beings can sink to. Yeah. And, um, and I, also uh, on the same sort of theme, and I think, Lindsay, you know a lot about this, um, that hold the most dangerous animal in the yeah. world, a woman. Um, this is in the context of the fact that uh, men were starting to come back from the war and they didn't have any jobs because women had taken them because women mm. had gone out to work while men had gone out and fought. And they, women were starting to look at a life which was not about child rearing and house tending. Um, and I, I, I think there was a fear. The femme fatales in film noir were a kind of crystallisation of the fear of women that was beginning to creep into post-war. Yeah, yeah. but... I mean, of course, the women did lose their jobs. The men did get their jobs back, and Absolutely. they were they were all out of the workforce. So women now had these had these expectations that they could have maybe earned their own living, but now they can't. And and a lot of the femme fatale is, well, what have I got to sell? Yeah, I've got to sell my. That's that's what I've got to sell. Yeah. Um. And so it's it's a way of how. How can I use what I have to get on in life? There was no other, very few other options open to them, unless, as you say, they wanted to be kind of a, a, yeah, a homemaker. Absolutely, absolutely. Provide for me, you chump. Yeah. It would probably <laughs> yeah. be the key line in of the femme fatale. Well, I mean, you can pretty much imagine Vera saying that, followed by "shut up." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when he tried to, when he tried to argue, he says at one point in the in the hotel rooms again in his his narration, if this was fiction, which you know. It is. <laughs> if this was fiction, I'd fall in love with Vera. Or maybe she'd die in a heroic way to save my life. And of course she does do that in the end. So there's a there's a lot of he predicts what would help him and guess what? Guess what? It, it happens. happens. So I think yeah, if we're gonna say the absolute key, what is the weirdest thing about this film? It's a 68-minute film, which is absolutely um, absorbing. Uh, the plot is is twisty. The acting is great. The music is great. It's a conventional movie, except for the fact that absolutely nothing that you see on screen probably happened. Yeah. <laughs> At least not the way yeah. that these protagonists say yeah. it did. And it's got it's got weird actors who are not at all appealing, mm -hmm. and yet incredibly, you cannot take your eyes off them. You yeah. cannot take your eyes off them. Do you think it's time for some trivia? Go on then. All right then. Well, um, one piece of trivia that I guess, you know, uh, goes straight on from what Lindsay was saying there is uh, about the actor Tom Neal. Um, Tom Neal was a moderately successful B-movie actor of his day who had also had an amateur boxing career. Um, but his first marriage had fallen apart because, uh, and she cited mental cruelty, and then later on in his life, he was uh, tried and convicted for uh, the involuntary manslaughter of uh, his current wife. 
um, and he served, um, I think it was, uh, six years in prison, and a year after uh, being released, uh, he died. Um, there was a remake of Detour, um, which uh, died a death, <laughs> and uh, starred Tom Neal Jr. <laughs> in his only ever acting role. Oh my God, role. imagine that's your legacy. I want to re- re- remake what my dad did. I mean, that's a tragic story about his about his second wife. And it's It's got horrible overtones yeah. of... The real, it, it, the I mean, character in... in involuntary ma- manslaughter really sounds like something Al would kind of claim has happened to both Haskell and, and Vera. So that's that's really... I know. That's really horrible. Dark. Dark. Yeah. Um... Just a few other things to mention. Um, Haskins meets his maker on his way to betting on a horse called Paradisical, which means idyllic or befitting of heaven. Um, The I Can't Believe That You're In Love With Me song was released as a single uh, sung by Bing Crosby. (laughs) And uh, there is a reference to um, somebody called Emily Post. And Emily Post is a popular American author of books about etiquette. Uh, The uh, joke about her is made in someone, uh, the context of someone should write a book about the etiquette of murder. (laughs) Just talking about Bing Crosby, one one bit of trivia that I know is, um, so obviously these days, lots of people revere film noir, not just in France, but, but all over the world. Film noir is cool, it's super cool, it's sophisticated. But it's it's kind of, I guess it's um, influence can be overstated. So at the time when this was made in 1945, film noirs tended not to be the most massive films in the, in the year. And in 1945, the most massive film in the year, the biggest box office, was Bing Crosby as a priest in the Bells of St Mary's. In the Bells of St Mary's. How weird. So not everybody was into yeah. the the filth and and darkness and and murder and fate of of film noir. No, but everybody should be, everybody should be into the filth and darkness and and fate and film noir of of Detour. Uh, it's brilliant. It's weird. You can see it on YouTube. It's in public domain. So I would say, don't don't kick against your fate. Watch Detour. Enjoy it. What's Wrong With This Picture is brought to you by Lindsay McCulloch and Gary Mulholland and is recorded by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. Music composed and performed by Russ Keffert.